Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this distinguished panel. And this panel is uh, the Thin Green Line and the Northwest Energy Future. And I'm, I'm Brady Walkinshaw. I'm the CEO of uh, grist.org, the national environmental media publication. Uh, and I'm thrilled that of our six panels we're hosting today, this is our, this is our, our environmental panel in the politics in the politics session, and I'm, I'm emceeing the, the track here. So I'm going to turn over and, inter and introduce um, our four guests here and then pass it over to my, my colleague, Michelle. So first of all, in the middle here, we have Tim Ballou, uh, and he's an enrolled member of the Lummi Nation, a lifelong commercial fisherman, he served in the Lummi Commercial Company Board of Directors and served as a tribal chairman of the Lummi Indian Business Council and was just recently appointed to the Whatcom County Council. And between coal terminals and salmon outbreaks, you've been busy. So to his left, we have someone all of you may know and we're really lucky to have Secretary Sally Jewell with us today. As you will know, lifelong outdoor enthusiast, former CEO of REI, um, and very dedicated to the development of renewable energy and the protection of our public lands and water, which to be nonpartisan, she's, uh, she has a different perspective from the current person in that position. <laughs> and I also want to recognize the third panelist who's closest to me, Emily Johnston, co-founder of 350 Seattle, she is a poet, essayist, and activist, and she's been published in Slate, Crosscut, The Oregonian, and her first book of poetry, titled Her Animals, was a finalist for the Washington State Book Award. So. And our, our moderator for today, which I'm delighted that we have Michelle Nyhouse with us, uh, she's an American science journalist who writes about conservation and climate change for publications like The New Yorker, National Geographic, and The Smithsonian. So without further ado, uh, welcome the panel and look forward to the discussion. So thank you. Thanks so much. Let's see, can you hear me? Good. Well, thanks so much to our panelists for being here, and thanks to all of you. Um, I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation for the next all too brief 45 minutes. Um, let me take a couple of those minutes just to set the table. Um, as most of you know, we here in the Pacific Northwest are at the choke point between uh, oil, gas, and coal supplies in the interior west and Asian markets. And over the past decade, there have been literally dozens of proposed coal, petrochemical, oil by rail projects in the region. But something surprising happened on the way to the market. <laughs> um, Tribal governments, local governments, grassroots coalitions got together and fought these projects, sometimes one by one, sometimes regionally, and many of them were fought back. So I just want to take a moment because I feel like we hear about these battles locally, we hear about them in isolation, and we don't often get a bird's eye view of just how significant this movement has been both for our region and really for the rest of the world. So, eight oil projects. This is uh, the Northwest from British Columbia to Southern Oregon. 
Uh, eight oil projects have been killed by economics, local opposition, or both, including, as of last week, the Tesoro Savage Oil by Rail Terminal proposed for Vancouver, Washington. Nine gas and petrochemical projects have been killed by an economics, local opposition, or a combination of both. Eight other gas and petrochemical projects are hanging by a thread. Seven proposed coal export terminal projects have been killed by local opposition. Three others are delayed or likely dead. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. That said, there are some active proposals too. There are no active coal proposals, I should say. Um, there are two active oil by rail proposals, 24 active gas and petrochemical project proposals. And then as of last month, we have a um, new five-year plan from the Department of Interior that I hope we're going to have a chance to talk about that uh, has the potential to open up the Pacific Northwest Coast to offshore drilling for the first time in about three decades. So. How did we get here? Where do we go from here? Um, I'm going to assume for the purposes of this discussion that we, are, um, we all want a safe and stable climate for our kids. We all agree that reducing carbon emissions is one of the things we have to do to get there. We want to do that as equitably as we possibly can. Um, and we can argue about all, everything else. <laughs> so, and uh, let me say that as a journalist, I am um, all too aware that there, these, thing, these issues have extremely complicated solutions, but I'm also personally and professionally very aware of what's at stake. I live in the Columbia Gorge. I live right across the river from the Mosier train derailment, um, and I had the interesting experience about a year and a half ago of reading on Twitter about a train derailment and looking up from my computer to see a plume of smoke rising across the river. Uh, and the, we knew kids who went to the school that was several hundred yards away, and we all know from living in the gorge what could have happened had it not been an unusually calm day in the area. So, um, so these are serious issues, and uh, they're worth talking about in depth. I want to start by um, by asking Tim to talk a little about the a little bit about the um, Cherry Point coal terminal fight. Um, what? Many of these fights have um, involved tribal treaty rights, and it was central in this fight. Um, the Lummi tribe asserted their treaty fishing rights, and, and that was, um, that was a, the deciding factor in the Army Corps of Engineers' decision not to, not to approve the project. Um, so Tim, could you just talk a little bit about how the tribe got to that point? Um, because the tribe did take on a, a, quite a risk in asserting those rights. Uh, yeah, thank you. And I'm assuming uh, everyone in the room or most folks are familiar with the uh, Gateway Pacific Terminal, uh, the most recent uh, proposal for the largest, the, the nation's uh, largest uh, coal export uh, located just north, just north of us. And it's uh, right at the heart of our uh, uh, territory, our aboriginal fishing grounds. And as equally as important, um, it is home to an archaeological site, a documented archaeological site, and uh, many sacred sites at the at the area. And the uh, proposed terminal uh, was going to was uh, being proposed to be built right on top of uh, uh, these sacred sites. And uh, unfortunately, uh, that the federal protections and uh, policies for sacred sites aren't uh, as strong as uh, as we would like them to be. 
and uh, raising objections solely on those um, didn't bring the protection uh, that uh, one of the other options that the tribe has and it's asserting our treaty fishing right. Uh, it's a, a right that's been adjudicated, a right that we constantly, as a constant vigil, uh, to get recognized, respected, and um, after a deliberation process and consensus building um, within the tribe, uh, we, we, the, the, the leadership, uh, the people, and the entire tribal government made a team effort uh, to, to uh, exert our, our treaty fishing right, um, uh, to interject that into the uh, permitting process that the Corps was going through. And um, I, I think that really set the path for, uh, for the, the, the direction of the tribe and also um, uh, for uh, some of the, uh, our supporters in the community who are, were like-minded and wanting to um, protect a way of life and the, the, the measures and uh, metrics that you mentioned before of you know, what we want for our kids, I interpret that as uh, you know, what, what, what way of life do we want to pass on to our next generation? And uh, that was the path that, that the tribe, uh, uh, and it wasn't the first time either, it wasn't the first time that the tribe um, used, uh, exerted its treaty right, our treaty right, at this, that, that exact same site. It was the third uh, proposal over about two and a half, three decades, and, uh, and we prevailed, and, uh, and our way of life will uh, be passed on to our children. It's, it's a special thing. One of my favorite lines that I've heard Tim say is that treaties have been making America great since 1855. <laughs> um, so Emily was involved um, very early on with the uh, grassroots resistance to many of these projects. So Emily, could you, um, I think you, your involvement started with the Shell No campaign that many of you are aware of and um, or participated in perhaps. And um, Emily uh, was literally, uh, I think, there at, um, on, the, on the ground floor, so to speak. So to <laughs> tell us about um, the, the very beginnings of the Shell No campaign, since you were there to see them. <clears throat> yeah, so this started before we'd even started 350 Seattle. Uh, my friend Carlo, who's in the audience, and I had, uh, when the shell rigs were first hosted in Seattle in 2012, I think it was, um, we had no organizational affiliation or anything, but we knew each other as you know climate activists, um, and we just organized a couple of vigils, basically, uh, because we were so upset by them being there. So when, <clears throat> in 2015, uh, one of the reporters from Q13 called me and, and said basically, hey, what have you got to say about the fact that Shell's coming back to town? And I was, I was floored. Um, and so he came over, did a brief interview, and you know, gave me the details on the next port hearing. And what was different that time was that uh, this time they were going to be hosted in the public port. So these were our elected port commissioners who had made this deal. Um, and uh, in addition to that, <clears throat> We got really lucky in that only the week before that, uh, the journal Nature had come out with an article 
laying out which fossil fuel projects we basically could not do and stave off climate disaster. And one of the things they said was, we cannot engage in Arctic drilling uh, and expect to have a stable climate. Um, and so we were able to leverage that and just repeat that at every possible opportunity. And we turned people out to hearings. Uh, we engaged in the, you know, like lots of trainings on the kayaks, of course, for the kayak blockade. There was the three-day festival resistance at the port, and it was pretty much a around-the-clock um, effort for about six months. So. so Sally was watching this campaign from Washington, D.C. <laughs> <laughs> and tell us what it looked like from that vantage and what, what it, from your point of view, what it did accomplish, what it didn't accomplish, what it couldn't accomplish. Well, I will say that my... Uh, my husband came home, um, and we live in West Seattle, and uh, he shot a picture from the top of the West Seattle Bridge, and he said, this is in our backyard. It's pretty dramatic, so I think for Emily's purposes, you probably couldn't have asked for a simpler, easier backdrop to make a point than having a giant oil rig moored around uh, that terminal, right? So here are the facts, and it was really difficult. The Seattle City Council unanimously sent me a letter saying stop the drilling in the Arctic. And this is why what's happening right now on the revamping of the five-year plan for offshore drilling all around the United States makes a huge difference. These leases in the Chukchi Sea were let under the second uh, Bush term by my predecessor, uh, Dirk Kempthorne. And they had opened up a lot more areas to drilling, and Shell had paid, I can't remember the number, but billions of dollars for their leases, as had ConocoPhillips and several others in the Chukchi Sea. Those are contracts from the U.S. government to a private company. And as long as they're keeping their lease payments current, you can't just stop them. What you can do, and this is what we did do, and uh, I took a lot of heat, but I really didn't have a lot of choice, is make sure that when they go, it's done safely and responsibly. So Emily mentioned the 2012 effort. You may recall that uh, the rig um, on its way back came adrift from its tugboat and ran aground. That was the Culloch. Uh, huge embarrassment, black eye, and wake-up call, I think, for everybody about the risks of drilling in that region. So before we would allow them to go forward, we made them jump through a bunch of hoops, which they did not like. Uh, so in my job, if everybody wasn't mad at you, um, you know, it just wasn't a normal day. Uh, everybody was mad at you all the time for just about everything. But what we did do is say, if the only way to stop Shell from drilling would have been to repay them what they had invested, which by that point was about $7 billion of our money collectively that would have had to uh, have been paid to them. So we said you can only drill, and I think it was a 29-day window. You have to have a second rig on site in order to, if you were plugging and abandoning your test well and you had a blowout, you need to be able to drill a kill well and stop that um, sort of like Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf of Mexico um, before the ice moves in. So that narrowed the window to a very short period of time. You also can't impact the walrus migration, um, whale migration, and so on. So there were a lot of restrictions. They did go up, they drilled, and uh, the reality is they didn't find anything economic. 
and I know I heaved a sigh of relief. Um, the economics, I don't think, will be there for drilling in the Arctic long term, but the reality is there is oil up there, and until we move beyond fossil fuels, it will be at risk. And the activities, and we can get to it at the end if you like, that are happening right now in the five-year plan, we actually pulled off a, the, basically all of the Arctic, save a small area in the Beaufort Sea adjacent to uh, onshore activity and offshore activity happening with the state. Otherwise, we closed the entire Arctic, and that has been reversed by the Trump administration already. So we are at risk. All those leases, by the way, in the Chukchi Sea were relinquished. That's off the table now. There are no more existing leases unless this administration changes that, and they could. So these, these individual flashpoints um, have really have turned into a a broad regional movement. And Tim and Emily, maybe you can chime in on this too. I, I, Tim has told me a little bit about how non-tribal activists um, were helpful in the fight against the Cherry Point project um, at, at very specific times. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, I, I can't stress enough how much the, uh, the, the fight to protect Cherry Point or Huachiakin, the, the ancient village site, uh, uh, the name of the, the village site that we, we give it, uh, was a team effort both at the tribe, like so many dedicated staff members, technical team members uh, from our natural resource department, our legal staff uh, played a key role in it, um, along with uh, the tribal leadership, not just you know, my office, but the entire, the commitment from our entire council and our people uh, keeping us uh, committed to, to, uh, to defending it. And there was a lot of interest and probably a lot of folks uh, here in this room who uh, took part in wanting to uh, protect uh, this area and region uh, for different reasons. Um, and for ours, it was uh, primarily uh, treaty rights to be able to exercise and practice something that's very important to us. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, environmental groups and a lot of uh, friends who, who uh, wanted to help, and they consistently told us, you know, how can we uh, contribute to the fight? And uh, there was uh, one, uh, I, I, I bet my, the best way I can describe that is uh, recalling um, about a year before uh, the, the determination from the Corps, uh, there was uh, members of the Montana delegation, uh, not including John Tester, uh, who is a, a, a great senator, um, that was trying to uh, pass legislation that changed the permit process to uh, not uh, take into account a tribe's uh, treaty uh, objection until after the EIS was done, until after uh, resources were spent from the federal government to go through a permitting process and not to take in any uh, potential objection from any tribes. And I remember um, at one point, the, 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 that specific day we heard that, we, we, we got on the phone, uh, we called uh, folks from uh, the Sierra Club and different uh, organizations, and uh, there was a wave of uh, phone calls and letters and emails uh, that went into not just uh, our home delegation, but uh, to um, um, many members of the, the committee that this uh, was going in front of, and uh, you guys stopped it. You guys stopped it from ever happening, and that allowed the process to go through and uh, the core to take in our our objection and make their de determination. It um, 
And then that, that was just one instance where there was uh, you know, a, a team effort across the board. So Eric DePlace of the Sightline Institute and a shout out to the Sightline Institute for all the great research and work that they've done on um, what's been happening regionally with energy over the last decade or so. Um, Eric DePlace has called this, this loose coalition of activists and local governments and tribal governments the thin green line, and which I think is a great term. And so Sally, what, what do you think that the effect of, of the thin green line and, and what, what has happened because of it, what, what is the effect of that beyond the region? What's the effect on um, coal resources and oil resources in the interior west, especially on public lands? I think it's very important. I think that citizen activism, uh, standing up for tribal rights, listening to local communities, governments, cities, different interests is absolutely critical if we're going to shape a future that we're proud to leave to succeeding generations. And we're not on a very good path right now. Um, business interests are very powerful. And some people said to me, you know, what was one of the most surprising things that you found when you went to Washington, D.C.? And people didn't like my answer. My answer was how corrupt it was. And uh, it was stunning to me. It was legal corruption, not illegal corruption, but it's campaign finance. It's um, the way that politicians from both sides of the aisle will stand up for the interests of people that have been supporting their campaign to the detriment of their, uh, of their constituents in very obvious ways. Um, Harry Reid, you know, head of the Senate for the Democrats, uh, trying to stop us from recognizing the Pamunkey tribe, which would be the first federally recognized tribe in the state of Virginia, which just happens to be across the Potomac River from the largest casino project that MGM Grand has built with a concern about tribal gaming, which when you understand, and Tim can explain this, federal recognition. You want recognition for your treaty rights, for who you are as individuals, for your culture and your language. Um, it's not about gaming. Uh, and uh, yet Harry Reid took me on over that. John McCain, another well-known senator, uh, took me on over um, trying to, well, he did, actually. He changed some language in the defense authorization bill to do a land swap from Forest Service lands where the Bureau of Land Management oversaw the mineral rights for the largest copper deposit in the United States, and he did a land swap and gave it to the two largest mining companies in the world, which are both Australian, on a sacred site, the Oak Flats, in um, uh, southern Arizona because it would not, to Tim's point earlier, have likely passed muster from an environmental impact statement standpoint when uh, tribal rights were taken into account. So um, these voices are very important. The powers of citizen voices, standing up for what you believe in, local voices, the thin green line of opposition here, well, you know, if, if coal uh, and oil and gas running by rail or by pipeline or otherwise is a risk to the environment here. It is important that people stand up for that. 
And I don't know if you heard the feud going on in Canada at Nanaimo yesterday. I heard it on the news. Uh, Justin Trudeau was there between BC and Alberta over an oil pipeline. These are important uh, topics um, and they need to be discussed. And we are all users of fossil fuels. We can't help it. I'm sure some are helping power the lights over us. Uh, there are consequences for um, hydroelectric power. Uh, voices are really important so that we can come together and craft solutions as well as policies that incent us as individuals, as businesses, uh, as states to do the right thing for the planet and the environment, which will not happen absent a variety of voices at the table. So I saw firsthand how important it was and I, I really do uh, appreciate both uh, Tim and Emily and the, the broader um, communities that they represent because they do have a huge impact. And what companies may be able to do, and companies aren't evil, um, but some of their actions can be construed as such. What they don't like is reputational risk, and that is a big hammer that an activist has uh, that can help offset uh, the checkbook and the wallet and what they can do, whether it's in Olympia or in uh, Washington, D.C., that does uh, corrupt our, uh, our system. So, Sorry, kind of a downer, <laughs> Debbie Downer here. Sorry about that. Uh, well, let me bring it down a little further <laughs> and, and say that, uh, that D.C. is a different place than it was a year ago. Um, in many ways, how can can we in the region best make our voices heard in this administration? Given your experience with uh, with the swamp, <laughs> well, I think the 2016 or excuse me, 2018 election is really, really important. Really important. Um, people need to get active. Uh, and it's true for our statewide elections as well. Um, there's been incredibly strategic gerrymandering going on, really largely led by the Koch brothers and their money for the better part of two decades. And we do not have representation among our, um, our constituents in the United States. If we want to change that, the 2018 election is really critical because it's going to be the, the redistricting for the 2020 census will happen um, in the state legislatures around the country. So right now, um, they very much are dominated uh, by gerrymandered districts that are all the way Republican or all the way Democratic, and some of them very artfully drawn so that there's not equal representation across both political parties. So I would say 18 elections are really important. And the other thing is, for God's sake, talk to people that don't agree with you in a respectful way. Let's get back to having a discussion and disagreeing without being disagreeable. Um, we've just gotten away from that. We know that social media and you know the sort of various channels of communication, I mean, yes, I'm an NPR listener and you know NBC Nightly News and Washington Post and New York Times and Seattle Times, and there's probably a number of you that do the same. I can't take Fox News. Um, I try just to get a perspective from the other side. And I think this is typical. If you are in that camp, you can't stand to listen to NPR, for example. Um, we gotta get past that and listen and talk to each other as citizens and community members so that um, we can work together on those things that we share in common and not just those things that we uh, disagree with each other about. 
Emily, um, any thoughts about that? I'd love to hear about your, your view on the strategy going forward, and, and Tim, maybe you can chime in as well. Um, how do we hold this in green line? Um, or how so do you hold it? We've been doing a really great job of holding it so far. Um, the problem is that it's a, a lot of effort to fight these fights battle by battle. Um, and even as we're winning these battles, we know that we're losing the war um, and in terms of climate change. And, it, you know, to my mind, one of the most useful thing about these fights is they give us an opportunity to make it clear uh, how short our time window is and, and how much urgency there is around this. Because, you know, I, it's probably obvious that I come from a very different perspective from Sally, but uh, the truth is that even when Obama was in office, even if Clinton had won, uh, we, are, we would still have been absolutely losing the war. Um, and the system as it's functioning right now uh, is, is not going to save us. And so really the, the power of grassroots movements um, is that while other people are working within the political realities and <clears throat> doing what they you know, perceive to be the limits of what they can do within those political realities, we have to change the political realities. Um, and one of the ways in which we do that is by giving people a sense of their power. Um, and you know, again, like where there is the poss possibility of reputational damage, that's huge. Um, unfortunately, you know, the fossil fuel companies, Arctic drilling was a little bit different and also tar sands are a little bit different because those are so egregious. But the truth is they're not gonna change their core business model. So like, how do you ruin their reputation you know, by talking about the end of the world that is coming if we keep using fossil fuels at the rate that we're using them um, and, and still manage to like effect change and get people to uh, push the political system in such a way that we can actually get the emissions reductions we need to stave that off. So, in, and in terms of strategy, like there are a bunch of ways to do that. The, one of the places that there, you can inflict rep reputational damage right now, for example, is in the financing of these projects. And so that's something that we as 350 Seattle have been focused on uh, and trying to go after the, the banks and um, other groups that, that fund these projects and say basically like, hey, you're financing the end of the world, that's not okay. Um, and of course the divestment movement had the same uh, rationale behind it. Um, and so that's a really important angle. The other thing, and, and maybe the most important thing, I think, uh, is that uh, right now, because we know there's no audience at the federal level, we have to accomplish things locally, and we have to do that in such a way that it serves as a model for when the rest of the country wakes up, whether that's two years, four years, whatever from now, um, and that we will have tried certain things and have a, have a pretty good idea of what worked and what didn't. Um, and, and the only, you know, it's really all about changing people's imagination and their sense of what's possible. Uh, and so, like, we have to push really hard locally uh, on what we think Seattle can accomplish in terms of emissions reductions. Um, because we've been really good about talking about that kind of thing, and we've been really bad at actually putting it, making it happen. Um, and we only have a few years in, in which that's really gonna be meaningful in the way that we need it to be meaningful. Um, and that means we have to be doing it right now. So Tim, you're no longer um Tribal chairman, you've gotten to return to crabbing, and Tim was able to wrap up his crabbing season in order to be with us today. I'm grateful for that. Um, but so you're no longer as deep in politics as you were. But what um, what does it look like going forward for the tribe in terms of um, 
protecting your fishing rights, protect and you know protecting the a stable climate for your kids. Uh, uh, something I learned uh, very early uh, in in uh, leadership of uh, so, uh, tribal chairman of the of, of the Lummi Nation. It's you're the uh, executive of a sovereign nation, and it's your and my uh, was my key responsibility to uh, protect and promote our our treaty rights. And for the Lummi people, fishing is so. Um, definitive of who we are. It, it, it was uh, one of the, the key uh, things to, to, uh, to, to preserve. And, and um, I, I learned very early that uh, you have to leave your personal agenda uh, at the door and very much plan for the future but address what's uh, here and now. And that takes uh, having the discussions with outside communities and also um, learning to uh, disagree when you need to, but also to act, to be co committed to to uh, to what you think is right and what's uh, what what you believe in, and for uh, citizens at the and uh, our, our tribal members, um, holding your your leadership accountable to what you want them to do is so important. Um, the Cherry Point uh, issue was not an uh, issue uh, that was you know, my pet project or my, uh, um, that the, the reason I went into tribal leadership, but it was the issue of the day. And my people told the council that that is uh, what we need uh, to address. We need that site protected. And, um, and, I, and I also see that in uh, local politics and local uh, uh, engagement. If, uh, the, the, if the citizens and the constituents Hold the leadership accountable. Eventually, they will uh, they will move. And uh, you know, I think it's asking yourself, uh, what do you feel comfortable doing? Uh, if that's you know, picking up a phone, writing a letter, writing an email, uh, maybe it's uh, organizing of some sort. Ask yourself, what do you feel comfortable doing? And when you find that, ask yourself, are you able to give a little bit more? You don't have to, but you ask yourself, is there something else that uh, that I could do, and uh, if you if you do, you know, stay committed to it, and uh, eventually, uh, the change that you're working for will happen. So, you as a tribal chairman, however, were were truly, you were not beholden to other interests. As Sally was talking about, you 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 were beholden to your constituents and and not other interests and. And uh, I'm, this is a question for all of you. What do we do when our, um, our voices are drowned out by those other interests that we may not even know are exerting power over our leaders? Raise hell. <laughs> Turn off a pipeline. <laughs> Turn off a pipeline. <laughs> yeah, let me just say, um, you know, I've just been interacting with students on this, just trying to address how do you create this future that's economically successful so that, you know, people can see a future for themselves, but also environmentally sustainable that, you know, is what uh, Emily's talking about. And it takes many different facets of our democracy and civil society working to those ends. Um, Businesses have to be part of the solution. We won't get there if businesses aren't part of the solution. 
Um, so dragging them through the mud reputationally when they aren't is very important and that's an important role for activists. And I can give you an example of REI being embarrassed by forest ethics because we did not know where our paper was coming from for catalogs back in the early 2000s and that was an enormous wake up call. Uh, they picked on Victoria's Secret but REI that year earned like three lumps of coal and a fruitcake for our behavior. I can tell you that wasn't good. And by the time we addressed it, we were up to like three Santas and a, a reindeer, I think. Um, so, but it matters. It matters because reputation matters. Some companies, you know, consumers facing ones, that's gonna maybe matter a little bit more than it is to one like the Koch brothers that might be more obscure. But each part of this has to fit together. And I think there's also a role for, um, uh, for scientists and, and uh, businesses and academics and so on to paint a picture where people can see themselves in, where they can see themselves and their children and a future that isn't just you know, a climate Armageddon, which we all can see is coming, at least those of us that are paying attention, it is what steps can I take to get there? And it's really hard. And it probably involves uh, some level of new technologies around carbon sequestration, getting carbon out of the atmosphere. It involves ecosystem services and actually valuing uh, trees and wetlands and parts of our environment that are absorbing carbon. Uh, and it involves changes in our behavior, which will probably only happen when we have incentives to do that. So there's no easy fix, but everybody really does have to be um, at the table pulling in the right direction, employing both a carrot and a stick. And uh, I don't think you'll get there if you don't have really all hands on deck doing that. Other thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, I agree that uh, it, that we need everybody working in every way, for sure. Uh, I definitely, carbon sequestration is not on my list of, of things I'm looking to as a solution. Um, you know, but I, I think we're going to have to shake the system up much more than uh, than probably Sally thinks in, in order to uh, survive, basically. Um, and I think that uh, the the way that our system currently operates uh, is just flat out not going to be not going not going to be sustainable because we ha do have such a short window. If we if we were doing this 30, 40 years ago, like I would be completely behind, you know, um, thinking that uh, getting businesses to be more sustainable and and carbon taxes and things like that probably would you know would do the trick. Uh, but but the fossil fuel industry was lying to us for m multiple decades, um, and as and and buying our political system. Uh, and as a result, we're in this this uh, moment in time where we really only have a few years to turn the, turn things around quite seriously. Um, and I think there's going to be uh, some upheaval around that, which, which doesn't mean that still we don't we can't uh, we have to press on the existing system absolutely, and we have to press on businesses absolutely. Um, yeah, but I think it's going to be pretty dramatic, and I think that we have to be thinking in pretty imaginative ways about what society um, is going to look like and what some of the answers will look like. Uh, because I think try, actually cutting in emissions at the rate that we need to uh, is going to change life uh, pretty dramatically. So. 
What does shaking up the system look like to you? Uh, what does it look like to me? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good question. You know, uh, all kinds of things, really. You know, I mean, as you know, I've been engaged in a number of direct, direct actions, um, and, and I absolutely think that's one of the things that we have to have because we have to wake the system up. Um, uh, you know, by no means do I think that's the only answer, and I work within the system, you know, quite a lot. Uh, so, you know, I don't pretend to have a... a crystal ball as to what it is actually going to look like when things shift enough. Um, but I do think that there have been a lot of people working on this for a long time in a lot of different ways, um, and that, that we're coming to a point where more and more people are understanding the urgency, uh, and that things might actually change quite quickly when they start changing. And I think we have to be ready to take some leaps of faith, basically, um, as to what we are personally willing to do uh, in order to preserve the stability of life as we know it. Um, and you know, I, I certainly think that's going to involve, you know, a lot of people changing their lives in a, in a variety of ways. Thoughts on that from either of you? Well, I would just say um, that's the crux of the problem. You want to get there, but you don't know how. We have to deeply decarbonize, um, either getting carbon out of the system or changing pretty much everything that we have that is driving our economy, uh, you know, driving the way we live. Even if we lived very differently, it's still not enough. So this is where there needs to be the right incentives to do the right kind of work to figure out what is the answer to that. What can we do? And I worry that if um, it's such a dramatic change from where we are now that people are going to throw up their hands and say, we can't get there, so we'll just adapt. We are. I mean, sometimes I like to say, because I did a lot of work in invasive species uh, in my last job, we, we human beings are the ultimate invasive species. We are the most adaptable to whatever you throw at us. We can live from the hottest hot to the coldest cold. Um, it, it, we will find a way to survive but we tend to not do things until we feel like they are in our interest to do them. So I think in order to get to where you'd like us to go, Emily, and I agree with where you'd like us to go, we have to come up with some solutions where people see themselves in that picture. And that requires uh, just an awful lot of smart people as well as incentives to do the right thing if we're really going to move. Um, people aren't gonna do this voluntarily and we see it uh, in so many ways just in our daily lives. So. Um, it's really serious stuff, and decarbonizing is difficult. We know it's what we have to do, uh, but we need to pull together to be able to make that happen. And as activists as um, you know, any of us may be or choose to be, uh, we also have to be really practical on what can people do, what can we do to get things done. And I think policies do make a difference, incentives make a difference, and we should be working you know, maybe at both ends of the spectrum to get that done. I think we're almost out of time, but um, deeply decarbonizing is a phrase that's <laughs> ringing in my head. Any, any final thoughts on how, how we in the region can deeply decarbonize in a, in a just way, I suppose, is the word I'll use. How can, how can we get there? How, and, and perhaps, secondly, how can we um, convince others who aren't thinking about this as much as we are, how can we convince others of the urgency 
of this issue when it's not something that's in front of us most of the time as we're making our morning commute or what have you? I, um, I, you know, I think as far as the deep decarbonization goes, uh, in cities, it's actually pretty simple. Uh, in cities, you know, what the first steps of that involve are affordable housing um, and density and transit. Um, and we have to get the, the whole city uh, refocused away from cars and from, you know, the sort of primacy of car storage on our streets and return the streets to the people um, so that uh, everybody has transit options that are not driving, driving to work. Um, and the thing about a lot of those options actually is that once the people resist many of those changes, um, and certainly we've seen resistance to density, for example, um, but uh, most, for the most part, when those changes are actually implemented, people prefer what life is like when those things happen. So there's, you know, whether you're talking congestion pricing in Stockholm or whether you're talking the changes to the street systems in Buenos Aires that they've done, you know, people put up a big stink because it's not what they're used to and they're used to being able to drive in a certain way. Um, and, and yet when it shifts uh, and they have a different set of options, everyone's like, wow, this is beautiful. This is actually like why I live in a city. Um, and so, yeah, so in cities, which after all is where most people live, um, a lot of the, the, the first steps at least are, are, we know what they are, they're pretty simple, they're pretty direct, and they actually don't you know, involve um, like massive political change. It's more about cultural change and getting people to understand how quickly we have to do this uh, and how important it is, not just that somebody like get in their electric car um, or buy an electric car as their next vehicle, but instead that they understand that like we have to make sure everybody can get to work um, without getting in, a, in an internal combustion engine car. Uh, and that means transit. It doesn't mean just, you know, personal choices here and there uh, for themselves. I feel like we're just getting started, but we're out of time. Um, I hope we can continue this conversation in other ways. Thanks so much for being here, and thanks so much to our panelists. Really, thank you all.